Let's pray together. Oh God, in Christ alone, this Christ Jesus who is all and in all, this Christ Jesus who will raise up a final generation at the end of human time, passionate, passionate about Him. We come to the last piece, three angels, one warning. Charismatic confusion, been there and done that. Babylonian confusion, ditto. American confusion last Sabbath, we were there. Final peace, global confusion. Holy Father, as we turn to the apocalypse one last time, let this teaching be clear. One little line, but let it be clear. And call this generation to the mission that is yours at this endgame hour, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Speaking of global confusion, I have here in my hands, and let's get a camera on this because I want you to see this. I have here in my hands, I have a bill, all right? This is a bill of money. This is currency, and I'm going to hold it so that we can get that camera. I want you to, can, can you see the zeros on it? Can, can you see the zeros? This, I am happy to tell you, and it's mine, this is a $20 billion note from Zimbabwe. And I am a wealthy man. Hallelujah. This note, when it was circulating just a few months ago, would buy you a loaf of bread and no more. It's called hyperinflation. What's hyperinflation, Dwight? Hyperinflation is when the central bank of a nation, and trust me, it's happening now, not hyperinflation, but the central banks. It's when a central bank begins to print money, inject more money into the stream of the local economy. Why do they do that? They're hoping that they will somehow be able to raise the economy, so kind of, kind of stimulate the economy. But the problem is, if you keep printing money and injecting it into the local economy, the, the, the money that you already have gets lower and lower and lower in value until finally it takes $20 billion to get a loaf of bread. Came across a fascinating piece of research two weeks ago. This is in John Malden's e-letter that I subscribe to, Out of the Box. Malden is an investment specialist. In this e-letter, he's quoting Dylan Grice, who's an economist with a bank, Societe Generale. So this is a huge international bank. So here, here's the economist. Fascinating. Listen to this. Grice has studied the history of monetary devaluation from the Roman Empire onward and has found, now hold on, when governments devalue their currency as it happened with this $20 billion note, when governments devalue their currency and thus inflate their economies, and I'm quoting Grice now, the debasement of currency throughout history coincided with a debasement of society. So that as currency was debased, society itself, the social fabric, also was debased. And when the social fabric gets debased, society immediately begins to look for a scapegoat. And that's what caught my eye. He's, he, he, he has taken devaluations throughout history. So let's go back to when he started. He started with the Roman Empire around 300 A.D., the uh, emperor de devalued the currency. It went down, and society was debased as well, and they immediately turned to someone, a scapegoat they could blame, some segment of society. And in 300 AD, guess what? It was the Christians, the bloody Diocletian uh, uh, persecution of Christians. It was, it was awful. 
Fast forward to the French Revolution, debasement of, of currency, what happens? Debasement of society, and now they're looking for somebody to blame, royalty and the intelligentsia. Fast forward to Nazi Germany, massive hyperinflation, debasement, devaluing the currency, and with the devaluation of the currency, there is a debasement of society, and now we have to find somebody to blame, and guess who got blamed? You got it, the Jews. Fast forward to today. Who will be picked today? Because guess what, ladies and gentlemen? The central banks in the United States, the United Kingdom, the European Union, Japan, and others are all devaluating their currency. Now, it's much more controlled than Zimbabwe. It's much more regulated. But the fact of the matter is, hyperinflation is just as possible with any devaluation. And when the currency devalues, society itself begins to frazzle and devalue. Amazing. Let me put it on the screen for you. These are the words of Dylan Grice. He's wondering now who, who's going to get the blame now. And now, he writes, the social debasement is clear for all to see. The 99% blame the 1%. You remember that, don't you? Occupy Wall Street. They said, we're the 99%, you're the 1%. The 99% blame the 1%. The 1% the blame the 47%. And if you weren't sleeping during the presidential campaign, you know what that number's about. All right? Keep reading. The private sector blames the public sector. The public sector turns this, returns the sentiment. The young blame the old. Everyone blame. That's a, his mistake. Everyone, everyone blames the rich. Now keep reading. All I see, this is Dylan Grice, the economist with Societe Generale. All I see is more of the same. More money debasement, more unintended, unintended consequences, and more social disorder. I worry that it will be Great disorder. Now, those capitals are his. Great disorder. He calls it great disorder. We're calling it global confusion. How did he put it? The debasement of currency coincides with the debasement of society. And in the confusion, who will get blamed this time, I wonder? Just think. Just think. For the last time, let's go to the apocalypse. In this mini-series, go to the book of Revelation, please. Part four. Three angels, one warning. We've done the three angels, but there is a tagline. A lot of people miss the tagline. If you miss the tagline, you've, you've cut out the heart of the three angels and the one warning. Don't miss the tagline. We're only going to concentrate on the tagline. We're not going to read the three angels. We've already read them. We've had our time together. Drop down to verse 12. Revelation chapter 14. By the way, I'm in the New Revised Standard Version today, my dad's Bible. It's really an honor for me to be able to preach out of this today. If you didn't bring a Bible, grab the Pew Bible. You need to see this solitary line. One, three angels, one warning, one generation, one sentence long. Here we go. Revelation chapter 14. And in the Pew Bible, by the way, it's page 830. Let's put the words on the screen. Revelation 14, verse 12. Here is a call for the, for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and hold fast to the faith of Jesus. Three angels, one warning, one generation, one sentence, the end. That's how it operates here because in verse 14, Jesus comes. See that picture over my head? That's verse 14. See that rose window over my head? That's verse 14. He's sitting on a cloud. He has a crown. He has a sickle in his hand. That's verse 14. One generation, one sentence, then verse 14 happens. That's why I've been rather earnest 
about drawing our collective campus attention back to these three angels. So who are these people? Let's read it again, verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and hold fast to the faith of Jesus. Who are these people? Obviously, in a time of great morass, in a time of great crisis, in a time of global confusion, who are these people? Let me read it again. Verse 12, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and hold, faith, hold fast to the faith of Jesus. There they are, as plain as day, three ID markers. Three ID markers that will define a radical movement that is both the product and the propagator of the three angels' messages. The generation that comes out of those messages is described right here. One line, three ID markers. Let's write them down. Grab your study guide right now. Let's go. Let's not, let's not waste a moment. Ushers, bless you. Where are you? Let's go, ushers. Let's put in, in the hands of those who are here. If you didn't get a study guide, you'll want this study guide. It's the final piece of this four-part series. Hold your hand up and our friendly ushers are coming your way. We could use an usher right down on this side. Bless you. Thank you. And up in the balcony. Good. I want you to have this study guide, three ID markers, and we're delighted to have those of you who are watching live streaming right now, glad you're here. Or you're watching on satellite, you're watching on television somewhere right here in Michigan. glad to have you as well. You can go to our website. Let me put it on the screen for you. There it is. You see it, www.pmchurch.tv. Go to that website. The title of this mini-series, Three Angels, One Warning, and you're looking for a part four, which is global confusion. Global confusion, all right? All right, let's jot them down. Three ID markers. When the three are done, I'm done. ID marker number one. Let's put it on the screen, please. Radical endurance. ID marker number one. Radical endurance to the end. Would you write in the word endurance, please? Keep your pen moving. Because the Greek word for endurance is hupomone. It's a noun. It means to remain or abide under. Now, I gave a, a, a definition like it's a verb, but that's what it means. It means it is that remaining or abiding under. You're under something. Hey, listen, have you ever gone backpacking up to, the, up to a, a mountainside, up to a, a mountain peak? When we, when we used to live out in the Pacific Northwest from whence we came, uh, we, we would go backpacking up into those mountains. And I'm telling you, when you get to the top, the, the blue, the purple vistas, it's absolutely stunning. It's worth the entire trip. The, the only bummer about backpacking is the backpack. If it weren't for the backpack, backpacking would be wonderful. But you're carrying these 70 pounds of camping supplies on your tired back, and you're saying, oh, if I could just drop this backpack, this would be a glorious hike. But you can't because you need to survive. And so you put one foot in front of the other. You hupomone, you, you are remaining under the burden. You're not going to get out from under it. You're going, endurance, you're going to carry this all the way to the top. There will be a generation at the end of time, that will not get out from under the burden. It will bear, it will endure to the very end. Wow. By the way, just like their Lord and Savior, take a look at this. The book of Hebrews is just within striking distance here. Go a few pages back to Hebrews. Take a look at this. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Well, I like this. You're going to see the same word, the same word, being used to describe the Lord Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12, let's pick it up in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight 
and the sin that clings so closely. And let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before Him, what's the next word? Endured. There's that word. Endured the cross, disregarding its shame. And He has taken His seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Now notice verse 3. Consider Him who endured, there's that word again, who endured such hostility against Himself from sinners so that you, Dwight, so that you, worshiper, so that you may not grow weary or lose heart. Would you jot that down, please? Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Jesus endured the cross. This final generation, this one-sentence generation, they're going to be just like Jesus in that regard. They're going to endure to the end. All the way up Calvary's mountain, He endures. He carries it on. What He's carrying on His back is not the weight of the cross. Are you kidding? What He's carrying on His back is the weight of my sins, your sins, our sins. He carries that. Oh, if I could just get out from under this. If I could just, if I could just step out. No, He endures all the way to the summit. And He dies for the likes of you and me. It's no wonder Hebrews calls us, consider Him so that we may not grow weary and lose heart. Consider Him. Look at I know, I know, some of you have been enduring for a very long time. Enduring a marriage that seems hopelessly cold. Enduring a chronic suffering that won't go away. Enduring the heartache of children on the run spiritually. Enduring the choking grip of a poverty you cannot escape, enduring your battling demons who threaten your very soul, consider Him. Consider Him who endured such hostility against Himself and do not give up, my friend. Remain under that backpack. Keep that backpack on. Remain under. Consider Jesus. He knows what you're going through. He knows what you have endured. And He has not left you companionless. He endures with you. Consider Jesus. You're not going to climb this last stretch alone. The backpack stays, but endure. He endures with you. I mean, that's the point right here. Just turn a page back. What is this? Chapter 10, Hebrews 10. Verse 36, oh, I love this. Verse 36, Hebrews 10, so one page back. For you need endurance. That's the very same word, Revelation 14, 12. Great is the endurance. Here are they who have the endurance. Yep, same word. For you need endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. And yo, what was promised? Here it is, verse 37. For yet in a very little while, the one who is coming will come, and not delay. Endure. He's coming back. He is coming back. Endure. Endure. Let's be honest. It really takes patient endurance to wait out this return of Christ. I mean, please, what is he waiting for? You know, sometimes I feel like I'm, I'm one of the souls under the altar there in Revelation chapter 6. You remember that in Revelation 6? And the souls under the altar are crying, How long, oh God, how long does this go on? When do you say enough is enough? How long? 
Because while we wait, they die, the people we love. And while we wait, we die, the people with hope. And if we don't die, we become sick. And if we don't become sick, we grow old, and then we die anyway. How long, oh God, till you wrap this thing up? Radical endurance. So don't give up. What did Jesus say in Matthew, Matthew 24, 13? She who endures to the end, he who endures to the end will be saved. Don't you quit, girl. Boy, you don't quit. Stay under that backpack. He's climbing the mountain with you. Three ID markers. Go back to Revelation 14, verse 12 again. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and hold fast to the faith of Jesus. ID marker number one, radical endurance to the end. ID marker number two, jot this down, will you please? Radical obedience to God. Radical obedience to God. How are they, how, how are they ID this final generation of the loyal? Keep your pen moving. Here are those who keep the commandments. Write in the word commandments. Keep the commandments of God. And what commandments do you suppose these are? We will find out very quickly in that great story where that rich young ruler finally catches up with Jesus outside the town and he asks the most important question a human being can ever raise. How do I get saved? What do I need to do to get saved? And Jesus looks into his face in Matthew 19. Very simple. Jesus looks into his face. Rich young ruler, waiting, pins and needles. Okay, I want to be saved. What do I need to do? Jesus says, keep the commandments. The very same Greek as in Revelation 14, 12. Keep the commandments. Well, what commandments are you talking about? Because the young man shoots that back. Okay, now we'll go to verse 18. The young man shoots that question back. Rich young ruler says to Jesus, which ones? And Jesus said to him, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. You shall also love your neighbor as yourself. What commandments are those, ladies and gentlemen? Call it out to me. What commandments are those? Those are the Ten Commandments. Write it down, please. Jesus, the commandments of God are the Ten Commandments. By the way, in Matthew 15 with the scribes and the Pharisees, identical conversation, same conclusion. When he says commandments, he means the Ten Commandments. Yeah, but let's take a rabbi. We need a rabbi to really weigh in on this. How about Rabbi Paul? Okay, let's ask Rabbi Paul. Let's put Romans chapter 7. On the screen, verse 12, so the law, okay, so here's the rabbi, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. Paul, are you down on the law? Nope. Is, are the commandments okay? Yep. Now, what commandment are you talking about? Verse 7, what then should we say? That the law is sin? Oh, please. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, what, what, what's that last line? You shall not what? Where did that line come from? Ten Commandments. Jot it down as well. Ask Paul. He will tell you. When he talks about commandments, he's referring to the Ten Commandments. Jot it down. So what are these commandments? That God's loyal, ID'd generation at the end of time will be keeping. What are these Ten Commandments? Let me share this quotation from John T. Anderson. He's absolutely right. In his powerful book, Three Angels, One Truth. Three Angels, One Truth. That book, if you get that book, is going to bless you to your core. Here is John T. Anderson. There can be no question that the commandments of God, 
that the saints keep at the close of earth's history are indeed, write it in please, the Ten Commandments, God's holy law, the Decalogue spoken from Sinai and committed to writing by God's own finger. You remember that story, don't you? You say, oh, come on, Dwight, please. What's the big deal? I mean, what did you think? Don't you, don't you suppose every follower knows the Ten Commandments are a big deal? Oh, whoa, 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 slow down. Hey, wait a minute now, think, think, think. You remember that end, end game coalition we briefly dealt with last week in Revelation 13? Remember that uh, coalition, that confederacy? You have the geo-religio-political power of the Middle Ages church. You have the geo-religio-political power of the United States. You have the geo-religio-political power of the dragon. They form a confederacy and they force the entire planet to worship an image of them. An image. So it is a terribly big deal that those loyal to God are described with the ID marker, they are those who keep the commandments of God. It's a huge deal. Now, I remind you, in Christendom, there is general agreement that nine of the Ten Commandments apply everywhere to everybody. Isn't that right? Ah, but what happened? Early in the history of Christianity, leaders of the church began to set aside the seventh-day Sabbath as the day of worship is commanded in the fourth commandment, choosing instead to worship on the day their pagan neighbors were worshiping on, the day of the sun. And over the course of centuries, that substitution became permanent until finally the church of the Middle Ages declared, we are the ones that changed it, and anybody who still keeps it is acknowledging we have authority over all. Whoa. So you better believe it. It is a huge deal that God's loyal generation on earth is described as keeping the commandments of God, which very clearly include his command to worship on the seventh day, the seventh day Sabbath. I mean, after all, he's the creator. He's the one that gave the Sabbath as a perpetual gift to the human race. He's the one with his own finger carved out of the granite that command. Somebody else came along and tried to erase the granite carving, but you can't use an eraser with granite carving. And who's that someone? The arch rebel of, the arch rebel of heaven himself. Satan said, I'll, I will destroy and remove that reminder. <laughs> you go. John Anderson notes four reasons for the satanic fury that already you sense today against the Sabbath. Fill this in, will you? Put, the, put Anderson's words back up on the screen. This divine reminder of the seventh-day Sabbath and the fourth commandment has been under attack from the very beginning, for Satan saw how great a blessing, right in that word, blessing, how great a blessing the Sabbath can be when faithfully observed. I don't know what all the fuss is about. People are saying, you've got to do this. The, the, the Sabbath is just this onerous requirement that you have to do to get saved. Are you, are you serious? The Sabbath is a gift, perpetual gift to the human race. It's huge with blessing. If I were the devil, I'd be wanting to get rid of it too. And in fact, Anderson notes, and I thought this was rather insightful, four reasons why the devil, Satan, has turned on the seventh-day Sabbath. Watch this. 
The devil hates the Sabbath. Keep reading. Because one, it identifies God as a creator. Hey, listen, I'm on a university campus, and so are you. And everybody knows that in academia, we stand out like a sore thumb. Because academia across the board in the West and the East now embraces naturalism. There is no supernatural. Darwinism is the reigning worldview. And this tiny little campus raises its hand and says, excuse me, time out. The whole world, the whole world has written the Creator out of the, out of the playbook. Yeah. Somebody is furious over this day. Why does he hate the Sabbath? Because number one, it identifies God as a Creator. Because number two, by taking time off and spending it with Him, it builds our relationship with God. What is the problem with the Sabbath? This is a day for BFF, best friends forever. Isn't that what it is? It's BFF. See, I'm not that old. BFF. <laughs> you thought it was FFB. The Sabbath is a gift of God's friendship. Best friends forever. That's why he gave the Sabbath. What, what is all this? I mean, I, I, I've heard of people that, uh, that, uh, that, that, that go around and they, they try to get others to gather together just so that they can rag on the Sabbath. I, I don't understand it. You got a problem with friendship with God? Four reasons for his satanic fury. <coughs> because number three, well, like this. The Sabbath outlines salvation as a system of grace. We rest in his work. You know, the people that are, <clears throat> and some of them, God bless them, used to embrace the Sabbath. They had no problem with it. Something went wrong, and suddenly this gift that is of God's grace and resting in him, they, they've tried so hard to turn it into a gift of legalism, just this, this, this awful legalistic obligation that you have to do. It's not the Sabbath I know. I rest in him. Did I create myself? Nope. Can I recreate myself? Nope. I needed God for the first creation. I needed God for the second birth. I need him for everything, and I rest in him. And the Sabbath is a, is a symbol of that. Oh, and there's a fourth reason. Fourth reason, because the Sabbath demonstrates God's ability to bring his work to completion. You see, the, the, the prevailing norm, the worldview on this planet in academia is that eventually this star will go out, the star that we're near, black hole. Black star, baby, gone. Little planet, gone. No, the story of the Sabbath is what God starts, he finishes. And he's going to keep this creation going forever and ever. Amen. If I were the devil, I'd be furious at that day. Four reasons why. You go, John T. Anderson. Well done. Which, by the way, is why the endgame crisis will be a showdown between the authority of the Creator lived out in the lives of His faithful BFF friends and the authority of the deceiver lived out in the lives of His storefront confederacy. Trinity. Storefront. Jot this down, will you? All this series we've been wondering, well, what's the warning? What's the warning? Here it comes. Three angels, one warning. Jot it down. Three angels, one warning. That worship will be the battleground of earth's endgame between Christ and Satan, and that obedience will determine on whose side you will stand. That's it. Write it down. Worship is the endgame's hottest issue between Christ and Satan, and obedience will determine which side I'm on. They're not three sides. They're not four. They're not five. They're only two. Two sides. Christ or Satan.
Uh, jot this down, will you? First Samuel 15, verse 22, to obey is better than sacrifice. You remember that line as a kid? To obey is better than sacrifice. For obedience is the highest form of worship. Anybody who says, yeah, I worship God, I just don't obey Him. You're not worshiping God. You're putting on that you're worshiping God. You're not worshiping Him. You can only worship one who you surrender completely to. And if you don't obey Him, you're not worshiping Him. You're going through the motions to look like you are. Obedience is the highest form of worship. Three ID markers to identify God's last generation on earth. Number one, Radical endurance to the end. Number two, radical obedience to God. And finally, number three, radical devotion to Jesus. Jot this line down, will you? How do we know radical devotion? Because the line reads like this. Here are those who hold fast to the faith of Jesus. By the way, that's the last line of the three angels' messages. That, that phrase right there is the last line. Pull that line out and you've, taken, you've, you've gutted it You've gutted that passage of what, they, of what we would call it's Christ-centeredness. Over in that building over there, they would call it it's Christocentricity. It's Christ-centeredness. That line is essential. And by the way, the Greek in this line can be translated faith of Jesus or faith in Jesus. So let's look, let's look, let's look at the two possibilities. Jot it down, please. If it's the faith of Jesus, write in the word of, if it's the faith of Jesus, then this phrase describes Jesus' perfect life of unshakable faith and trust in the Father that He lived out for me. With God gladly receiving Jesus' victorious faith as my own. God says, well done, my beloved son. Spot on. I'll give that to Dwight. I'll give that faith to Dwight. I'll count that faith as Dwight's. Jesus' faith saves me. Oh, you can translate it faith in Jesus. That's the next one. Faith in Jesus. What's that describe? It describes me placing my first personal faith in Jesus and his perfect sacrifice in my place, trusting his victorious life, his death, his resurrection as the sole basis of my acceptance with God. Ladies and gentlemen, either way, it's all about Jesus. It's Jesus from end to end. That little line we looked up and planned to, Christ is all and in Oh. oh, so what's the big deal? Do I jot it down? This final ID marker makes it unequivocally clear, fill this in please, that obedience to God and His Sabbath is not a form of legalism, but is rather the fruit of passionate devotion to Jesus as both Savior and Lord. You've got to have both. Say, hey, listen, is Jesus your, is Jesus your Savior? Yep, He's Lord of salvation. Good. But is he your Lord? You have to have both. You can't, you can't have half, because if you have half, you have none. The one who is the Lord of salvation is also the Lord of the Sabbath. You can't cut them apart. They're inextricably bound. Radical obedience to God, radical devotion to Jesus, inexorably bound together. just as they were in the lives of those three young men been, who had been promoted up the chain high into national government. Boy, that's the kind of political appointment some of you uh, political science majors would love to have, wouldn't you? Promoted up the line, way up. I want to end with one of my favorite bedtime stories. My dad used to tell, tell this story to us kids. Oh, I love this story. It's Daniel 3's dramatic story of Shadrach, Meshach, and to bed we go. You know that story. 
It's a story about the golden image. You remember it? Come on, you remember it. Daniel 3, the golden image and the world being commanded to bow down and worship the image. If that story in Daniel 3 sounds vaguely familiar in Revelation 13 and 14, it's because it was intended to be. It's going to happen all over again. In fact, the parallels between Daniel 3 and Revelation 13, 14 are stunning. Let me give them to you as we wrap. Parallel number one. Jot it down, please. Parallel number one. Babylon rules the world. It was that way with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Babylon will rule the world, trust me, at the end. Parallel number one. Babylon rules the world. Parallel number two. The king of Babylon creates an image to honor himself. It was that way with Nebuchadnezzar. It will be that way with this power, this confederacy at the end. Parallel number three. He demands worship of himself. He demands it. It was that way then. It will be that way just ahead. Parallel number four, the penalty for refusal is the pain of death. You do it or else. It was that way for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It will be that way for the radical generation, the movement at the end of time. Parallel number five, all the world bows down and worships the image, all except a small minority. Parallel number six, their reasons for refusal are identical. Radical endurance, radical obedience, and radical devotion. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came up with the very same reasons as this final generation will demonstrate. In parallel number seven, blamed by Babylon, they are thrown to their death. But I lo always loved the ending of this story, don't you? I mean, Nebuchadnezzar's there. He said, I got him. I got those three boys. No more standing up to me. And the soldiers, remember what happened to the soldiers who threw them in? They sucked in, their, their lungs seared, gone, the biggest. Burn. And then Nebuchadnezzar panics. Oh, I love that moment every single time. He panics. He said, yo, servant, can we cast three in there? One, two, three. You made a mistake. We got four in there. But he stares at that fourth one. He says, I'm telling you, he looks like a god. I love that story. Blamed by Babylon, they are thrown to their death, but the Son of God is with them, and He delivers them. The end. Amen. I want to read that text one more time with you. Revelation 14, 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and hold fast to the faith of Jesus. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. Three angels... One warning, one generation at the end of time. And here's the question. It says, here is a call. Are you willing to answer the call? Are you? Are you willing to stand alone for Him if need be? Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Stand alone with Him in your dorm room. Stand alone with Him in your classroom. Stand alone with him in your bedroom. How about your boardroom? In your rec room? In your work room? Would you be willing to stand 
all alone for Him if need be. There will be a generation. There will be a generation at the end of time. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Ramrod, straight. The world won't have to figure out who to blame. The world won't have to say, well, let's got, we got to find somebody. All they'll have to do, who are the ramrod straight, standing alone ones? They're it. Dylan Grice says, when the economy melts, as it is now slowly and surely, when the economy melts, society looks for someone who's started all this. Ramrod straight. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Will you be a part of that generation? Take your connect card, please. Take your connect card. Only two responses today. Guests, we're glad to have you with us today. It's this little card that's found in your worship bulletin. Would you take your connect card? I'd like to give you an invitation, two invitations today. On the front of the card, the demographics just put what you think is essential. But we will need an email address. We will need an email address legibly written because if you're going to ask for some material and we want to send some material to you. So just put your email address there, please. Turn the card over. We call this our next step side of the card. I want to give you an opportunity. Look, at how could you have a teaching like this and just say, okay, great, Dwight, we're going home to dinner now. See you later. No, we've got to make a decision. We've got to, we've got to put ourselves on the line. Two choices today. Box number one, I choose to stand up for Jesus even if I have to stand alone like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Can you put a check mark there? I put a check mark there. I invite you to as well. I know, I know. Given your circumstances, to stand alone is a huge sacrifice. Don't let the sacrifice be your reason for saying no. I choose today by the grace of the Lord Jesus that I'll stand for Him by His grace, radically loyal to Him. There's a second box on this card today. I would like to be baptized in Christ and join those who radically stand for Him. It occurs to me that in a, in a worship gathering this size there might be a man, a woman, a young adult, even a teenager here, or two or three or four, who you've not been baptized yet for, for reasons that are known to you. You just say, ah, oh, not now, not now. Ladies and gentlemen, we, we are down here. We're down here. And it occurs to me this would be a very opportune time for you to make your decision to stand for Christ in baptism. So here's what I'll promise you. If you put a check mark there, I'm not going to rush you into anything. You, you determine. You take as much time as you... Nobody's going to be baptized next week. You take as much time as you wish. But while this teaching is still fresh in our minds, I need to invite you. If you have not been baptized, make that decision. 61 people this year already have made that decision. Put the check mark. 61. Just had the 61 in first service today. Three more. God is on the move. Jesus is coming soon. Why would you put off giving yourself wholly to Him? Give yourself to Him. 
If you have your email address, we'll, we'll get back in touch with you. We'll, we'll, we'll move at the speed you wish to move. But make the decision today. You say, Dwight, how can I make a decision for baptism? I don't even know Jesus. Oh, top box on, on the, uh, the little box in the, on the side box. I want, to be, <clears throat> I want to begin a relationship with Jesus. I want to be, go, this, go for this BFF with Christ. Put a check mark there. We'll send you, we'll send you material to read. Excuse me, send you material to read and a little video clip. It'll be for you. Just put a check mark there. You can start. You don't have to wait another day. Time's up. I want to pray over your decision, our collective decision. And guess what happens now is the ushers come right here. The, the, the uh, offering plate will slip by if you just drop this card in the offering plate. That'd be fine. Let's pray together. Oh, God. Three angels, one warning, one generation, one sentence, three ID markers. We want to be a part of that generation. Radical endurance, radical obedience, and radical devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, take our decisions, humble decisions. You're the one that emptied, you emptied your heart when you so loved the world that you gave your son to die for us. He wore the backpack of our sin all the way to Calvary. Never threw it off. Never quit. Oh, God, grant us the same endurance, the same obedience, and the same devotion. Receive our morning tithes and offerings as well. Multiply them to advance your kingdom quickly in this generation, the world over. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.